Well, good morning. I, um, I'm struck with the need to just reinforce something for you after watching that. And that is that when you come in here any given Sunday morning, our intent is to assault you with good news. <laughs> and uh, if you'll listen closely and pay attention closely, uh, you typically get three different sermons when you come in here. Uh, you get the music service part of the sermon, which uh, communicates truth in good ways. Uh, when we show videos like that, then you have the opportunity to have that sermon. Uh, and then if you hadn't got it in those two, then you have to suffer through mine. So uh, I just want to kind of reinforce that for you, that, that these videos are not fillers for us. Uh, the music service is not something we do to get to the sermon, and the sermon is not something that we do just because the preacher wants his time, right? All of that is geared towards helping us follow Christ closely. And uh, so I'm glad that you're here today, and I hope that that helps. Everybody comfortable? Yeah, well, let me see if I can help get you uncomfortable a little bit. I want to talk about comfort and our drive to be comfortable today. You know, you recognize that feeling that I'm referring to that at the end of a hard day, whether it's at work or uh, even doing some other things, um, you get to the house finally and you go into your closet and you pull out that comfortable pair of pants. No? <laughs> All right. If you don't get it, then say, that's dumb. We don't get that, okay? All of us have that comfortable attire that when we get home at the end of a hard day, one of the first things that we do is go to that set of clothing. Um, I, I think that's an interesting thing for us. Uh, maybe I could push it the other way and contrast that with some of those things that you have to do, whether it's for business or you know, you, you're roped into something else and you end up wearing one of those monkey suits or one of those kind of things. Uh, you know, prom season's coming up. And you, you know, it all sounds great on the front end, but about two and a half hours into it, you're going, I got to get out of these clothes. This is just killing me, right? Here's a good truth from that for us. Our lives largely are driven in the pursuit of comfort. If you don't have the job that you think gives you the income you need to be able to be comfortable, uh, then the chances are good that you're going to move to get that kind of a job. We love comfort. And maybe it's one of those things as you look forward and you think that someday, maybe, possibly, I'm going to get tired of going to work every day, and so I'm going to retire. Now, for some of us, that's a pipe dream, right? Because we're not doing the things necessary to get to the ability to do that. And so we begin to change our lifestyle and stuff so that someday, somewhere, if everything holds out, then we can walk away from that job for the last time and still be able to function in a comfortable way. We love our comfort. Um, so let me turn the question towards your Christianity. Are you comfortable in your spiritual life? Now, this is a good point for me to clarify something, and, and I know that when I talk about this, um, 
uh, we tend to segment who we are, okay? Because our lives, we have that emotional part of our life and we have that mental, the thinking part of our lives and those overlap a lot and, uh, and we have that spiritual part of our lives and we have that physical part of our lives and all of those together, we pull them apart so that we can understand and talk about and even do surgery in a way into those areas. Uh, but the reality is all of those are intermeshed and we are who we are. And who we are is driven to comfort. So I want to break off the spiritual part of that this morning as we kind of look at our personal discipleship, our following of Jesus. And the question is, are you comfortable in that part of your life? If you are, let me as lovingly as I can give you this warning. To be comfortable in your spiritual life is a very dangerous place to live. It is not healthy. One of the reasons it's not healthy. Well, let me, let me attack that this way. Um, what is it that drives people away from Christianity in our day? Now, I'm going I'm to give you my two answers. And I know that there are more answers than that, but here's my two. First of all, there is that outside out, and then there's the inside out. The outside out is that individual who we, for whatever one reason, we, we want them to come into the kingdom of God. We, we say that a lot of different ways. We want them to be a Christ follower. We want them to come into the kingdom of God. We want them to be saved. We're going to go to them and try to get them into life as only Jesus gives it. To be saved. But there are many people in our world on the outside of the church who have no intention of coming in. They're on the outside on their way out further. There are a lot of reasons for that. The question on the table is why are there those people? You know, some of the reason for that is because some Christians are just flat obnoxious. This is the person who says that I care so much about them that I'm going to go assault them with my Bible or my gospel tract or I don't care about them as a person as much as I want to get a notch on my spiritual gun belt. And so these Christian people tend to attack in the name of love for that person. One of the things we should be very conscious of as a people and the people of Christ is that how we approach the people on the outside is just as important, maybe more important, that we approach them. One of the things that's hard for us is another part of that outside out. Um, the obnoxious Christian drives those people away. The simplistic Christian refuses to hear the questions that the outside person has. And so we go with our nice little package and we don't hear the questions that they ask because, you know, the, realistically, when you get right down to it, uh, the society in which we live tends to be a little bit um, um, intellectual in the way they approach this. And so they bring valid questions to the table. How could this be? I don't understand this. And when we throw out our simplistic answers that are not well thought through and are 
theological shallow kind of stuff, that bumper, bumper sticker theology I've talked about from time to time. We don't give them answers that they need to be able to understand and, and to be able to pull it all together. And so sometimes we on the inside push outside people further out because we just don't meet them where they are. So what drives people away from Christianity sometimes is the people who are inside Christianity. I've quoted Mahatma Gandhi before. I'm not going to do it again today, but there are a lot of smart people out there who are on the verge of knowing Jesus and the life he gives, and if we're not careful, we just nudge them further away. But there's also, back to what drives people away from Christianity, there is that inside-out Problem. They, the Christian who is inside the kingdom of God can be pushed out, not out of the kingdom, but out of fellowship with Christ. Typically where I see this is those people who have had catastrophic situations in their life and their faith just fails them. A loss of a loved one, a personal attack of some kind, something. I just, by the way, I, I just took a book that was sent to me, uh, I don't know, from some publisher somewhere, uh, and it was by one of Billy Graham's people. I don't remember which one, but uh, it was, the title was along the lines of, what do you do when church people hurt you? And a lot of people walk out of our churches because they've been hurt inside. It is smart for us to ask the question of ourselves, why do people walk away from life? So that drives me to this other question for us today. What causes a Christian to stagnate in his spiritual formation process? In that ongoing move to be more like Christ and to draw closer to the Lord, what is it that causes us to stagnate in that and here's my answer to pull all of that that I've done t- together now ultimately what moves us to stagnate in our spiritual lives is we get comfortable in our spiritual lives when there is pressure on us we love comfort so much that we move to fix the pressure so that we can get to comfortable but once we get to comfortable uh, we tend to want to stay there let me use this as an example. Now, many of you may not uh, have a point of reference here. I'm looking out, and there's, there's some gray hair and some no hair out there, so you will get this. But some of the rest of us may not. You know, they used to make vehicles with bench seats in the front. Okay? Now, if you don't know what that means, if you just envision somebody setting a couch in the front seat of a car instead of two seats like is in there now, that's the picture, Right? So years ago, they used to make vehicles that way. And I always could tell as I was driving down the road when I was passing a couple coming at me who were in love for not too long. All right? Because one of the benefits... (laughs) That's what I'm talking about right there. So... Uh, So one of the benefits of a bench seat is when you're in love with that person in the front seat, they can sit right over there with you, right? 
And so, for those of you who don't have this point of reference, you could in those days be driving down the road and you could see this huge person coming at you. But actually, it was a guy driving, usually, and this girl was like almost in his lap, right? She got her head leaned over on his shoulder, and, you know, he's got his arm around her, and it's just sickening to see that driving down the road. But I can tell as a pastor, counselor, when things were not so new for that couple. Because there was a correlation between the length of their relationship and the distance that she moved to the other side of the truck. And finally, finally, the automakers made it easy on the couple to say, you know what, we'll just make you sit separately all the time. Okay, so here's what I want you to get from that. In the relationship, your relationship has the very, I'm talking about your dating or your marriage relationship, will stagnate if you get comfortable in it. Teresa and I have been married 34 years, and there's not a day go by, goes by but that both of us recognize we have to work on this today. Because if I don't work on it with her today, I give her reason to move to the other side of the seat today. See what I'm saying with that? So as we come to how this all comes together for us, in our spiritual formation process, if we are not to stagnate in that relationship with Christ... We better work on it every day. But comfort says, I don't need to work on it because it's comfortable here. Finally, as it relates to this whole idea of comfort in our spiritual lives, I go to the words of Jesus himself. And in just a second, I'm going to ask Spencer to throw up there on the uh, overhead stuff for you to see these verses of Scripture in Matthew chapter 5. Because in Matthew chapter 5, we have Jesus as he begins to teach the Sermon on the Mount. Now, one of the first sermon series that I, I think it was the second sermon series that I preached when I got here was through the Sermon on the Mount. Here's why I did that. Sermon on the Mount is a screenshot of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. In that three-chapter stretch of Matthew's gospel, Jesus himself lays out for us, this is what it means to be my follower, my disciple. And that Sermon on the Mount, as it's laid out there, uh, contains a lot of stuff for us as it relates, okay, here's something to work on, here's something to work on, here's something to work on, and we just work our way through it, and Jesus just, uh, just knocks down these things for us. Okay, here is what it means to be a follower of mine. But tucked away in the early part of the Sermon on the Mount is the thesis of Jesus' sermon. It's the whole sermon in one sentence. Now, we're going to read this, but where I'm getting to is verse 20. But we're going to start Matthew 5 and verse 17. So probably I should get over there. And here's what it says. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, 
will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And with that, Jesus kind of pulls together all the stuff of their Hebrew background and their Judaism as it was presented to them in that first century, the heart of what God said, this is the standard for life in my kingdom. Jesus said, I'm not doing away with that. But neither did he say we take it as it is. Here's what he said, verse 20, the key part of this whole Sermon on the Mount. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And with that, Jesus fired a shot right across the bow of first century Hebrew life. Those people would have heard those words unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. You can't get into the kingdom of heaven. That is a huge statement because the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day were the ones who were the cream of the crop in religious stuff. Today, if I have my facts straight, is the Pro Bowl for the NFL. Make sure you get this, all right? The average college player is not good enough to play in the NFL. It is the cream of the college crop who makes it to play in the NFL. The Pro Bowl is the cream of the NFL crop. And so what we might say is of all of those people playing football, American football in the whole world, the guys who are going to play this evening in Hawaii are the best football players on the planet with the exception of the ones who are playing for the brass ring next week those guys are the equivalent of the scribes and Pharisees in the religious life of first century Jesus time so when Jesus comes and he says unless your righteousness surpasses that of those guys you can't make it I have to believe that the people on that hillside were shaking their heads and said then what's the use of trying I kind of wonder if maybe James didn't have these words of Jesus ringing in his mind when he wrote the words for today's text. And we're going to be now in John chapter, I mean, James chapter 4. We're going to read a couple of verses there, but we're going to focus in on verse 8. But let's begin with what Jesus said in Matthew 5.20. Unless your righteousness surpasses, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. It does us well to acknowledge that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was purely ritualistic. They centered their behavior on the ritual of the whole Judaism religious model. Jesus, in other words, is saying ritual is not going to be enough to get the job done for you. So let's talk about the rituals we have just for a second or two. What rituals are part of the way we do the Christian life? I grew up in an age when, well, our church didn't have a youth minister per se. If they had one, he wasn't substantial enough for me to remember it this far down the road. 
but I do remember hearing this from the people who worked with us as teenagers. You've got to have a quiet time. And then, I don't know what you're telling the kids, so don't tell me now. But uh, I, I, after I was through that, and then God called me to ministry, and so I started doing music stuff first, and after that I was doing youth ministry, uh, I, I would go to these youth gatherings, and I would go to these uh, youth conferences, and the, the consistent refrain from the key youth uh, people of our day, the, the big teachers of our day was, you got to teach your kids to have a quiet time. And so I started parroting that information back to the teenagers that I was working with until I realized that's just a mantra. It became a ritualistic kind of thing for us. You need to have a quiet time. I know that because I started doing that on my own on a daily basis. Not that I hadn't done it before, but the words quiet time. That means you got to read your Bible, you got to pray. And when you pray, here's the way, here's the list that you use, and here's the guy. And so I found it on this ritualistic day-by-day thing. Okay, I got to read my Bible. If I didn't read my Bible later in the day, I'll feel guilty because I didn't read my Bible because I'm supposed to check it off on my list. And then I'm supposed to pray and I sit down and start praying this list all the time. And I realized that I'd gone through months of quiet time and missed God totally. That's a ritual. And it is comfortable, but it's death to a relationship. Comfortable in our Christian ritual means that we don't have to really think about it. We're not moving forward, and so we just settle in. Now, don't miss, I'm not saying don't read your Bible and don't pray. I'm just saying if all you're doing is so doing that is so you can check something off on a list somewhere, then you're missing the whole point of it. So Jesus' whole thesis on the spiritual formation thing says that ritual is just not ever going to be enough. Which brings me to James chapter 4 in verse 8. The first part, I'm going to divide this verse into three statements because that's what James does. Uh, By the way, James didn't write it with verse numbers there. He's just... Well, anyway, uh, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I'm going to come back to that. And now he makes the statement and it's almost as if, before I read this, I want to tell you, it's almost as if James didn't get the memo from Jesus about rituals not enough because he makes a strong ritualistic directive here. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And I'm going to stop there. We'll get to the last part of it in just a second. But what what we have to see here is that James says these words, and in the ears of his hearers, they immediately go to their everyday life as Jews in their worship in Judaism. Because these scribes and Pharisees had made this incredible leap from what God originally designed to all of the ceremonial kind of washing their hands and they had to make sure that the water and, you know, they, they just took what God had said and pushed it beyond its logical conclusion and said to the people, that's what you have to do if you're going to be righteous. And Jesus said, nope, you got to do better than that. Here's the part where I get that. Look. Hold your place here, but you can go back with me to Exodus chapter 30. If you don't want to take the time to find it, Spencer's going to throw it up on the screen for you. In Exodus chapter 30, in the giving of the law, verse 17 through 21, here's what God said to Moses. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, you shall make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. 
You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. And when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister to burn, or, or excuse me, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. A strong word, verse 21. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. If they didn't get it the first time, they get it the second time. It's serious business with God. Washing their hands and feet before they go minister. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. So the law says, cleanse yourself before you do the ministry. Talking to the priests. So... What's going on with James here? He, 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 on one hand, had to know the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Ritual's not enough. But he quotes something here, or, or he puts something here, that pushes them back in their thinking to the Pharisees who were the masters at ritual. That gets us to the second part of this, or the third part, actually, the second part of what we're going to talk about today, of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so what James does now is he picks up not so much uh, just the words of the original law. Now he begins to pull in something of the words of the prophets. Very quickly, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we find this. The prophet says, for God speaking, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. There's your ceremonial. But then he says, remove the evil of, the de- of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct, uh, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And with that, we find that there has been this development in Jewish thought from the ceremonial being what is required to make you clean to a purification that changes the way you live. So James apparently did hear what Jesus had to say. Because if we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, we will find that Jesus says as a thesis, unless your righteousness surpasses that of scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And then he starts talking about the way you behave yourself and the internal part of who you are that drives your behavior. If we pull all of that together into one statement, James says, clean up your act. The problem with that is that we're comfortable with our act. We settle into thought patterns and activity patterns that even though they may in fact deny Jesus himself just by the way we live, we're comfortable with it. It's okay because my eternal salvation my get out of hell card has been punched I'm good James says taint so and it all fits to the central teaching of the first part of verse 8 draw near to God and he will draw near to you what happens when I draw near to God 
if that's such an important thing, and I believe it is, matter of fact, I believe that what we find the latter part of verse 8 informs the first part of verse 8. To cleanse your hands, part of that is to avoid the ritual part of it, but still do the right behavior. To purify your hearts is exactly what that means. It's from the inside, get clean so that you follow Christ the way you're supposed to. But all of that is driven by this idea of drawing near to God. So, so what does that look like to draw near to God? Let me use our sense of smell as a kind of a guiding piece of this analogy now. I told you a couple of weeks ago, uh, coming off of the Christmas holidays, that my grandson came to visit us. Uh, if you're visiting with us, his name is Declan. I didn't pick the name, so don't hold that against me. But um, he's, he's uh, seven months old almost now, I guess. Uh, sure has a big head, but that, that's the road travel part of him, I guess. Um, I told you about my wife and my daughter abandoning him and me and my son to go shopping. And so they leave Declan with us, and they're not out 10 minutes, and he starts, I mean, in Teresa's dad's language, he throws a wall-eyed fit. I don't even know what a wall-eyed fit is, except he threw one. And, uh, and so part of the deal, right, is I learned, because I've watched her deal with him. Um, and I had three kids of my own somewhere way back there. And so he's crying, he's th- and I don't know what to do. So I do what I saw her do. I grab him, and I turn him facing away from me. I have to be really delicate how I say this because I don't want to offend anybody. But I, I take him, and I face him away from me, and I pick him up, and I bring him close to my face. And you know why I do that with him? Uh, because I'm smelling to see if this boy has a problem. You with me? Right? So our sense of smell is, an, is a powerful thing. I, I see that sometimes with Teresa, right? Because uh, I'm not old enough yet to buy my own cologne because I don't know what smells good, right? So she buys cologne for me. And so sometimes I walk past her and I catch her doing this. She's, because she loves me, she's checking to see if I smell bad. Kind of like me with Declan, she's checking to, has he, has he, Cologned up today, right? And when I have cologned up for the day, after she does that sniffing thing, she kind of, there's this pleasant look on her face, right? Very different from the look on my face when I smelled my grandson. You with me so far? Okay, so um, maybe the best example of this is my dog in the backyard, Nanook. Um, he gets on the scent of squirrels and it just drives him nuts. And so he'll sweep the yard till he, you know, if he loses the scent or, or eats pears that drop off of this pear tree we had in our backyard. And, and, and we were watching him yesterday and he, he lost it and he's smelling around looking for it, right? Our sense of smell is a powerful tool for us. So what does it look like to draw near to God? I want to use the smell analogy with this picture. Because when we catch the scent of God, it draws us to him. First, there is that piece of God's character that is very appealing to us. It is that 
part of his character that is love. And when we, well, this is, by the way, the part we love the most. Of the three that I'm going to mention, this is the one that we like the most because we're needy. All of us are needy. And God's love reaches across the need to us and he pulls him to himself. And that is a pleasant thing for us. And as we get closer to him, using the analogy of smell, we catch the scent of this part of his character and it makes us want more of him. Go back, if you will, to the dating relationship that some of our teenagers wish they had. And... uh, it, it, you know, the early stage of a dating relationship, it's just awkward. You don't know how to handle yourself. You don't know what to say. You don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to not say the right thing. You, you certainly don't want to trip and fall on your face in front of them. But you know, the longer you're together and you build that relationship and that begins to be a friendship and then eventually somewhere that awkwardness turns into awesomeness, which is what a relationship ought to be for a married couple, Right? But you see, that's the love part of it that makes it that way. It's the part that goes, okay, this is, this is what God designed here. And so we go to John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him, I'm going to put it in my terms now, could have life. But that's the love part of God. He, he puts himself out there for us in the midst of our need, and he says, I, I want you. And so we draw near to him, and that part of him and his character smells good to us. That one is the, the best part of this. The next one is a little bit, makes us a little uneasy, to be honest with you. There are times that this next one is perfect, uh, and that is we, as we draw near to God, we catch the scent of his character that is wrapped up in justice. I should say that we love justice when we're the victim of injustice, right? Somebody did me wrong, and I want, no, I need, no, in America, I demand justice. And so we have these movements in 21st century American society demanding justice. And if we're the one who has been offended or wronged, then we're all for that. But if we're the ones who are doing the wrong, it makes us a little uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, we tend to label it as extreme and write it off rather than deal with it. And just so you know, and I'm not going to take the time to go there, but we could go into pieces of the Old Testament, the book of Amos, for instance. We saw it in that Isaiah passage I read. But there are those stretches of the Old Testament where God, through the voice of his prophets, demands an accounting on the part of his people and how they have treated others unjustly. And God demands that they get it right. And he so demanded it and they so ignored it that finally God said, you know what? I'll just let you go off into captivity for a while so that you can learn the lesson. That's not just behavior that God exhibited. That's part of his character. That's why Jesus had to die on a cross. 
because God demands an answer for sin. And so when we pull close to him, we begin to catch that scent of who he is. And it can be a very uncomfortable thing, but you see, there's the rub, isn't it? Because it's uncomfortable, we don't want to do that too much. And so we opt for comfortable Christianity that says, no, I'm good where I'm at here. I, I don't, if, if I'm going to have to treat people differently, then I'm not going to draw close to him. So we just settle for comfortable. Dangerous place to be. The last one, and I'm about to close. Musicians, won't you all come on up? When we begin to draw close to God, and now we're smack dab in the middle of verse 8. When we begin to draw near to God, we begin to catch his scent of holiness. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. This is not palatable for us. We, we don't like this part of it. Because holiness is not, hear me very carefully, holiness is not a destination. It is a process. To become more like Jesus Christ is the call of the New Testament. Jesus never says to us, take me in, accept me as your Savior, and then you be perfect morally, immediately like I am. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. He says, walk with me. He walked with these disciples. They walked with him for three years plus. Holiness is a process, but it is an uncomfortable process because it involves change. So we opt for stagnant many times. I use this as an example. I'm going to close. Our children's minister, Kevin Howland, uh, is an interesting guy. He's been to Afghanistan. He's been to Iraq. Uh, and uh, he picked up some nasty habits when he was in the military. One of them, I guess the only one that I really know of is one I want to talk about, is he doesn't wash his coffee cup ever. Nasty. I'm talking nasty to look at it, right? And so not too long ago, a couple of months ago, several months ago, one of our loving church members, I don't know who, I, I think I do know who it was, but uh, it's supposed to be secret, so maybe I'll just leave it at that. But uh, they caught that coffee cup floating around in the children's area when Kevin wasn't around, so they washed it. Uh, we had to replace plumbing after that. It was horrible. <laughs> no, we didn't. Um, so I just picked up on that person's lead, and so every once in a while when he's not in his office and his coffee cup's sitting there, I'll just go in there and get it and wash it because it's nasty. Right? Um, here's the picture of that. The outside looks great. The outside uh, gives every indication that the inside is pure. When you look at the inside, it needs help. You can do all of the right religious things and your inside be nasty. And so James says, Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. The only way you pull that off is if you draw near to God. And he will do that for you. I said at the beginning this question, what is it that drives people away from Christianity? Let me twist the question. 
What is it that draws people to Christianity and to Christ specifically? My answer from this passage is uncomfortable Christians do that. How comfortable are you? Let's pray. And as we go to prayer, we know that this kind of message has a way of getting right at you. My question to you is, how comfortable are you in your Christian life? Do you even know Christ? Are you comfortable in not knowing him? If that's true of you, let me just tell you that life with him is so much better than life without him. You just can't even imagine the difference. Knowing that statement, why would you even take a chance and walk out of here without at least beginning to question that and ask those questions? And this invitation time is a good time to do that. We'd love to lead you right up to where life begins with Jesus Christ and then let you make the choice of whether you go over or not. Many of us in here have long since trusted Christ for our salvation, but we got very comfortable, very stagnant, and we've adopted some nasty stuff inside of our lives that has a way of boiling out into our actions. Why don't you see what God has to say about that today? Change where he says change. We do that now. Father, take this time. Be glorified in it. Change lives for your glory is our prayer. In Jesus' name.